Hi, I'm JT White, author, digital native, and product person, obsessed with trying to find out how to make digital products and the people that make them the best we possibly can. This is Build for Better. My guest today is Calvin Carter. Calvin has over 30 years of experience as a serial tech entrepreneur. He started his most recent venture, Bottle Rocket, in March of 2008, the day after Steve Jobs announced the iPhone was open to third-party developers and months before the App Store even opened. His visionary and entrepreneurial spirit would earn him the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and Tech Titan CEO of the Year awards. At Bottle Rocket, he helped the company deliver over 500 successful digital products to Fortune 500 companies and achieve four Apple App Store Hall of Fame awards. No other company has received more than one. In 2022, he retired from the CEO position after selling the company to global agency giant WPP. Carter is known for using a culture-first, competitive mindset to build organizations where people do the best work of their lives and produce outsized results through a deeper connection with their work, each other, and a shared purpose. Calvin is ridiculously happily married, a proud father of two insanely amazing young women, and spends his nights mapping the sky as an amateur astrophotographer. He's also a friend, a mentor, and I couldn't be happier to have him on the podcast. Here's Calvin. We're talking about modeling, which was the first thing that came to mind when I thought about talking to you. Full transparency, I did work for Calvin, and in that time, I learned a lot about what you look for, what I look for in a, a leader and how what that leader does is so much more important than what the leader says you should do. So I want to dive into that specifically with you today about how modeling influences your thought process and your strategy in actually building a company and a product. Sure. Well, first I have to make a, cor a correction to what you just said, which was you didn't work for me. We worked together. Well, thank you. We did. <laughs> <laughs> Every relationship has to be a partnership or it's not an authentic relationship. Um, so yeah, modeling is, is, is radically important, I believe, um, because you know, if you, if you, there's so many different ways you can explain it, but probably the easiest way is if, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it, you know, humans are designed to observe and then attempt and continue to observe and continue to attempt. And if they see, they're going to model the behavior that they see. And so I think it's really important that leaders, you know, another way to say it is walk the talk and stuff like that. And cliches are cliches because, you know, they're kind of true. Um, so, so and, and, and so it's kind of pointing out the obvious, but what's not obvious is all the different ways that you can do it and all the different um, knock-on, positive knock-on effects that the right kind of modeling can have and all of the, the negative knock-on effects that bad modeling can have. There's this quote that is, it's just, I wish someone never told it to me. Um, the quote is, how you do anything is how you do everything. Yep. And it's one of those quotes that you hear it. And at first you're like, what? I got to have to kind of like, what? Got to see that written down. And then you look at it again. You're like, okay, is that just like a riddle? And then you're <laughs> looking at it and then you start to really unpack what it means. And then it's not until like months later, potentially years later, you start to realize like, oh my gosh. So like everything I do 
everything I touch, I leave my fingerprint on. And so I need to be really thinking carefully about how I behave in the world, who, who I, you know, surround myself with, because I literally leave my fingerprint on everything. And don't I want to be proud and, 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 you know, about, about, you know, what I did and the, the print that I left. And another way to look at it is, um, if you cut a corner in one place, where else are you cutting a corner? Yeah. And, and, you know, a, a very tried and true interview technique is to ask someone to talk about their previous employer and what happened. And, um, no matter how great the person is in terms of a skills fit with the job, if they immediately go to some sort of like blame defensive negativity, then you, you don't just say, oh, they just had a bad relationship. You have to then say, where else are they in their lives? Are they blaming something else or some system yeah. or some, you know, you know, persecutor and they're the victim. Um, and so it's those little tiny nuances that you then pick up if you really study modeling and you really start to realize how pervasive the impact modeling has on everyone's behavior, including your own. That's an important thing too, because yeah. you're modeling for yourself. You know, if you're, you know, nice to dogs and people are looking and kicking when they're when they're not. You're not nice to dogs. Right. <laughs> so that, that haunting, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. I'm, I'm so happy you led with it because it's actually a chapter in my book because of you. <laughs> that quote, very That's specifically. Cool. So it's, I've also since read it. Um, it's, it's attributed a lot to a guy named Richard Rohr, who's like a Franciscan uh, a priest. And I, it's one of those quotes that I think a lot of people probably can lay claim to. However, it it's pervasive. It's a thing that like so many times in my life now, specifically when building products, but even more so in building culture, I catch myself right before I hit send or right before I actually say something or right before I respond to something going, hold on, the yeah. way you do anything is the way, like, does it, can you afford yourself and whatever you're about to engage with? 18 extra seconds mm -hmm. to make sure that this is the way you want to move forward right now. And that has been an, an enormous learning for me in my life, uh, let alone in business. But I also think the thing I want to double click on first is big and small. So in the book, which is like the most esoteric part of the book that I wrote, I talk about the difference between paracrine and endocrine sig signals in the body, right? So paracrine signals are like really, really rapid response. It's one cell to one cell and it's an immediate thing. And then there's endocrine, which is like travels over the, the space of your body and it takes a while to get to it. I think about that a lot in what you were just saying, which is there's the what you do in front of the room, which is easy. And then it's how you respond to emails and how often you say hello to people when you walk in, which are like these longer tail signals that are also building the, the culture that you're building, which I believe as a product person ends up in the shit you build. People can feel kindness and they can feel collaboration in tools. So when you think about like, what's the, what's one thing that you really took pride in or that you think separated you in as a leader and as a founder 
that was a small thing that meant the world to you, or maybe somebody did to you in a previous job where it was like, it felt like a really small thing, but you're like, no, that, that mattered. Well, I do think that, um, people, we all want to matter and we all want to feel like they, we have consequence. We all want to be recognized. We all want to be heard. We basically just want to know we exist. Right. And that, and that you know, you know, and in Steve Jobs said he just wanted to make a small dent or ding or in the universe. Um, and so I do think that leaders can get themselves in trouble when they're when they're sending signals of I appreciate all of you when they're in a group setting. But when they're in an individual setting, they're, oh, I, I got to go. I don't actually appreciate you individually. I just, just, I just right. need all of you to think that I appreciate all of you as a group. But I didn't intend to get in a conversation about, you know, your kid. Right. You know, so there, there's, you know, that type of, of um, that kind of like, you know, fast, quick, direct, and then, then the longer tail um, can be found in that big, small, like you just said, big meaning group, small meaning individual, you know, you need, if you really, if you're really authentic about what you're doing, what you're modeling is not acting, but you're, if what you're modeling is authenticity, your, your true self, then it should be your true self at any, um, level of granularity, meaning, if I'm really being myself, then I should be myself with my dog, myself with my family, myself with my neighbors, myself with my company, myself with a city, myself, you know, you know, at strangers, et cetera. And when, and it's, and, you know, people are smart as hell. It's so easy to be found out <laughs> if that, if you aren't actually being authentic. And so, you know, I've talked to some business owners and they'll be like, yeah, but authentically, I don't give a shit. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, then you need to be thinking about, you know, how are you going to produce an environment where what you do give a shit about is what you're going to be talking about. Right. So if you really, really care about this thing over here, then just, you got to do you. Right. Well, 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 I have a hard time, you know, having conversations with people about this thing over here because I really just don't care about that thing. I'm like, oh, great. What do you care about? Oh man, what I really care about is because everyone cares about something. Right. And then you have them capture and focus on that. Now that might mean if they're gonna make a big switch from, well, I, I made everyone think I cared about this, but one day I'm finally gonna be myself. I care about that. That is a, that's a polarizing opportunity. That's power and polarity. You should write a chapter about power and polarity. Polarity is unbelievably powerful. Yeah. Um, both for good or bad, but I'd like to tend to use it for good. <laughs> and, and that you, when you're, when you are your true self, you're going to polarize the room. You're going to push away individuals, concepts, opportunities, avenues that you really should not be involved in. And you're going to pull towards you. And over a period of time, you will increase the mixture, mixture of the right people, the right opportunities, the right partnerships, the right whatevers over time. The trick is trying to do that as early as possible in your life, in your career, and the startup of your business, so you don't have to go through 
a yeah. spring cleaning or a or a or a massive pivot, kind of a crazy Ivan hard left. Um, and that's why I'm a big proponent of, you know, the figure out your Simon Sinek, you know, how, what, why your values communicate it, figure out your purpose, and then invite other people into your, in, into your business and into relationship with you. Um, but that's, I think one of the big things is, is, is really being yourself at all those different levels. Think like a Mandelbrot, which is basically, you know, Mandelbrot's like, it's the yep. same thing. And no matter how small or big you look at it, it's kind of the same shape. Yeah. Uh, and, and so like, you, you've got to be yourself at the smallest of fractals and the biggest of, you know, you know, large, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, scale, the large scales. Yeah. So you bring up, a, so one of the things that I heard there, right, and, and thinking about just everything that you just said is really about like team structure, right? So how important it is to have the right people installed. Um, because one of the things that this goes back to like Marcus Buckingham and like, you know, strength discovery and understanding like your position and where you want to exist, right? But being able to live authentically, which means you're in a better position to model means that if you have roles or things that you're in charge of or doing that you don't want to do, that you create an environment that's safe enough for somebody to raise their hand and go, Hey, I don't care about this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and like having an open dialogue, at least specifically smaller companies in the beginning going, I can do this for now in the absence of, of a better option, but eventually it needs to be off my plate because I actually don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. Or it, or, and you can even change the words from not give a shit to something less, less um, extreme. But there are definitely um, a pretty fast fall off when you get off of someone's gifts. And if we were at a whiteboard, I would draw three, you know, like a target with three circles. You know, yep. the middle one would be called gift. And I'm trying to remember now that the next ring out I think is, is. Um, Capability. The third one out is competency. I'm, I'm, I'm now kind of not remembering correctly, but the idea is you want to be in your gift circle. That's just the bullseye in the middle. You want to be there as many hours of the day as possible. Yep. And you want everyone around you to be in their gift as many hours a day as possible, which is why it's important to surround yourself with people who are different from you. It's why diversity of all sorts so is one of the greatest competitive advantages. You want people with different gifts. And I don't just mean like different skill sets, like I'm good at tech and you're good at creative, but like, you know, true diversity, like, you know, we grew up in different sides of the world. We might look different, you know, we have different, you know, belief systems, et cetera, et cetera. And when you do that, you then have, and with, and with, with scale of individuals, you have the opportunity, the possibility, it's a theoretical possibility. I'll be honest with you, it's purely theoretical where everyone can be on gift all the time. Now it's theoretical because life's messy right. and even left to the, to, you know, left to their own devices, humans don't always have the discipline to stay within their gift. They're always kind of like, oh, well, I decided to do that as well. And I did, I wanted to do this as well. And so you want, you need to have some grace there, but in general, it's constantly like it's, it's correcting back. It's, it's, um, it's uh, another great example is, you know, you're in a sailboat, the water's rough, the wind's going in different directions. You want to go a certain direction. Well, to get there, you have the big moves like tacking, 
You're having yep. to tack based on where you're going in the wind direction and changes. But you have the small moves, which are the waves slapping the bow that kind of move at it. But in general, you are going in the same direction. You just have small and periodically large deviations. But because you have hopefully a compass and you know the direction you should be going, you know what your gift really is, you're constantly returning yourself to that direction. You know, that's again, it's just cliche after cliche. These, these are, you know, none of these things I invented. It's just putting them together. It's, it's um, you know, progress is not in a straight line is another way to explain this. Right. But the correcting back to, you know, being on gift or what, what I call being on purpose is, 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 is extremely, extremely important. Um, and recognizing that is hard because we just get into our like to-do list and we, yeah. and then we get the phone and the emails and the WhatsApp and the text messages coming in and Slack, you know, ding, ding, ding. And those are all those big and small things taking you off of being, of going, you know, straight. And I do think periodically you have to go through a, um, a, a, a roles and responsibility spring cleaning of this is what like the, these things here, like I'm the best in the world at them and I'll never let anyone do them, but me, because I love it so much. Right. The next one is, is, you know what, this stuff is kind of hard, you know, only a few people, including myself really know how to do this. Right. But I'm not the only person and I don't mind it. It doesn't really take energy away from me, but it also doesn't fill me with energy. And then right. there's stuff that like, man, this is someone else's gift. I should, I should stop doing this today. And the more discipline you can have about returning yourself to that center and having respect for others and them telling you what their center is, and then you setting them up for success, yeah. not saying, what are you telling me that you, what you want to do? You work for me. You know, you'll do this. I hired you to do this. That's a terrible, first off, it's bad business. Right. It's bad, you know, humanity, but it's also, it's not a good R way to create ROI. Don't you want someone who is like jazzed about what they're going to do and they're going to like do it better than anyone and do, they're going to do the, they're going to do their best work of their lives because they're getting to do their gift. That's really you want. So it's, it's time to listen to people and they say like, you know what, I, I'll, I can do this. I really hate this other stuff. What I really want is this. Now you have those tough conversations about like, you know, your gift to the world and the world's needs. That's really where you should be working every day, that intersection of your gift to the world and the world's needs. And that again, works in scale, your gift to this company and the company's needs. And then you might come to the conclusion of like, you know what, my gift is not valued here or right. needed here. And you want to be, you want to be, you want to matter and you want to make a difference. So sometimes that means either changing jobs or changing roles within within, within an organization. And a bottle rocket, um, you know, a place that I was, you know, previously recently, you know, retired from started about 15 years ago. Um, we had people move within the organization um, from place to place. And and it was probably one of the biggest um, successes, I think, of our organization was to, and I'm not saying we did it perfectly was to support people and believe them when they said, I really want to do this. And then we said, okay, prove it. Give us, give us some proof points yeah. um, that, that you can do this. And they'll say like, well, 
I need the opportunity to do it and like create the opportunity to do it. And I, we can, I got stories on, on that if you want to talk about it more, but enough about that. Well, I think that, but for me, Calvin, right, all of that goes back to modeling though, right? Because like, first of all, you have to have an environment that allows people to, to speak their truth and feel like they can say that. And then also, I think there's a, a lot, what I observed in, in you as a leader and what I saw and the thing that, one, one of the things that really stuck with me was your, your willingness to be wrong or your willingness to not hold the microphone and go, this part's not about me. I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, it didn't mean that you were direct of opinion. It didn't mean you didn't care, but it just meant that like when it was somebody else's time, you were like, yeah, listen, this is your mic now. And then now you, now you go like it's your turn. <laughs> and then you'd come in after and say something if you needed to. Or I remember this is like a stupid memory you won't have because you ran hundreds of these meetings. But like, I was always amazed that you weren't always the last one to speak. And that was a thing that I had seen, right? And it's like, I had always seen that like people would set it up and then you'd wind up and it's always the last word. And there was a cut, like I have very vivid memories of being in rooms with you where like a meeting would end and you were gone. Like it was just somebody else's meeting now. And Calvin was not like, where's Calvin? He's like, oh, he's back here. It's done. Like that sort of stuff. I do think people take for granted how impactful that is to everyone around you and what those, what that, again, that modeling behavior, what that observed behavior actually means to people, because it frees people up to then ask better questions. It frees people up to be scared and vulnerable and say, I don't know if I can do this. It also frees up you to be able to have hard discussions with people from a place of earnesty. And one of the things that I've learned in my journey in, in building products and companies is like hard conversations are coming, homie. Like it's going to happen. Like there's, it's going to happen. It doesn't matter how successful your company is. It doesn't matter how well things are going. You're going to have to sit down and have some tough talks and having a positive bank account in that moment, I think is really big. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, is creating that bank account with individuals, because I got to see you and your company at a very interesting moment in time where you were growing rapidly. Right. And so if you read tribes and all that stuff, there's the, the there's inflection points, right? There's the 50, there's the 75, and there's the 150. And once you hit a certain part, you can't know anybody everybody anymore. Yeah. It becomes impossible. <laughs> right. And like navigating that as a as a founder, like how how did you navigate that and still maintain empathy and modeling behavior for everybody, considering you weren't as connected as you were when there was only 30 or 40 people? So um, I think it was being, being consistent and being authentic. And, and the best way to be consistent is to be authentic because you can be unauthentic, but then it's really hard to be consistent because it's kind of hard to remember, like, what act am I, was I putting on last time I talked to this person, you know? And, and... You know, I, I've started and run several companies in my life. I've had, I've had the fortune to do that. And the 20 something year old Calvin, um, didn't, didn't know that. And, um, I tried to be what I thought other people wanted or needed me to be. And it was hard to keep that ruse up. And I didn't realize it was a ruse. It was not an intentional. Yeah, you, you were know. trying your hardest. You were also yeah. trying your hardest. Oh, yeah. The previous Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> and, exactly. 
but it is it's hard to remember all those little micro lies and like micro unauthentic moments um and so later on maybe it was building confidence in myself maybe it was just getting tired of having to keep up those complex you know acting engagements but i just started being a lot more myself and um and that's when i learned that power of polarity and when you are yourself like really yourself that means you're you really need to be super vulnerable you got to be really honest and transparent about everything you know even the tough stuff and that was probably the hardest thing for me as a as a CEO, I got a lot better the last several years, but um, being honest about the hard things is one of the toughest things that I had as a challenge as a leader, because I wanted to be the good times guy. I wanted to make people happy. I didn't want to make them scared. I didn't. I think I thought I was would be hurting them if I sent them out of a room like worried. But then I realized I was I was hurting them if I sent them out of a room um, without knowing, you know, right. what's really going on. And and also, you know, being humble all the time, you know, in uh, humility is is really it's, it's important, but it was, it's really hard to to get across humility sometimes. And a really easy way to do that I found is by constantly setting like the context of, of humility. So like before I say something, I might say, you know, this is probably not the right idea. Right. Or this is just me thinking out loud, you know, or, or something like that. Or I'll say, I am absolutely not the expert here. I used to, I used to say in, 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 the, in, the, in the in creative meetings, you say, I am not art directing. Right. You know, the, the old, like the joke of the, the hovering art director, you know, <laughs> you that meme. but I'm like, I'm art, not art directing, but I want to talk about this, that, and the other. And so what it would do is it would create almost like, a, like an instant safe environment to then have that like tough conversation. Yeah. And it would it would kind of rem it would take the pin it take the firing pin out of the gun, if you would. Yeah. It's still there. It's still gonna be a challenge. It's still gonna be a potentially tough conversation. But just know that you know this is this this you know a that no one's gonna get hurt here. We're just having an open and honest conversation. And so I think that that like vulnerability, honesty, you know, humility, those are like really important components to you know. To achieving that yeah the other one that you brought up was transparency yeah and i and i think that that's a thing that it's interesting right i think like our generation is the first that had the impetus to even consider being transparent with business yeah. because there used to be really thick lines drawn for whatever reason i mean I, I know why they thought they did it but whatever it doesn't matter let's not make fun of them in the past right but fundamentally like look businesses are cyclical and sometimes you go on hiring sprees and sometimes you go on hiring freezes and sometimes you have to downsize and sometimes you need more people like mm -hmm. and and giving people access into that i think for me really felt like being part of a larger thing and softened the blow when things were bad because it didn't feel like all of a sudden you know you were getting hit by a train like it felt like you were a part of that discussion but what I think is interesting about transparency is that 
it's only helpful, I think, if there's empathy along with it. Because if you're transparent but an asshole, it doesn't mean much. <laughs> right? Like, because I remember this is a, a really small thing, but like you guys were very early to the we don't have a vacation policy game. You were like, you take take time. If you need time, you get time. Right. And like it was a novel concept then. And I believed you guys when you did it. I have since seen a lot of people abuse the shit out of that and basically use it as a trick where it's like, oh, you can always take time off. And then nobody ever takes time off ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I think it's when, when you're transparent and you're caring, right? So, so again, modeling from the very beginning, we care about our employees enough to make sure that you have time when you need it. And we have good health insurance and we have really good coffee here. Like those things mattered. It was like, oh, okay, this is like, that's setting the stage. And then you layer transparency on top of that it became a really powerful combination. And those two things meant a lot together. Mm -hmm. Separately, it would have been fine, but not as strong. So then how do you, you know, it's a lot. Like we've talked about a lot of things, right? Like you have to be, you have to have humility. You have to remain humble. You have to be inclusive. You have to be like, how do you do all those things and still run the business? <laughs> Through consistency. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, you, it's not, it's not hard if it's natural and you just let it happen. Right. You know? So, I mean, I honestly don't know if I could tell someone who truly doesn't like other people and doesn't respect the people they work with. I'm not sure if I could really coach them very well. And frankly, I'm not sure if I'd want to spend my time on the planet, the limited time I have on this little blue marble right. to do that. But it's really not when you free yourself of what are people going to think, um, which is really hard as a human. It's like one of the hardest things. Brutal. It's like freaking buying a car, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and like you know and and um, it, you know putting yourself in a position where you might potentially embarrass yourself or be considered a failure in front of. But yeah. I remember. Um, I remember there's, there was this one client that we had and we've been working with them a really long time and it was an abusive relationship and the, the people that were the true victims were my fellow rocketeers that were on the front lines dealing with the work, the, the inappropriate behavior, the, you know, all, all the type of stuff. Yeah. And, um, I remember the day, I mean, it's burned into me. I remember the day where I finally admitted it in front of the whole company. And I, I forgot the exact thing. I think it was probably one of our state of the state of the rocket addresses. And, and I remember saying, and, you know, it was a really good year. And I remember saying like, but, but there's some things where, you know, we lost our way as an organization and I lost my way as a, as a, as, as a leader. And I did not walk the, you know, uh, walk the talk and I did not follow our values, you know, and I let this happen. And, and what it was is it da, 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 and it's caused, you know, emotional issues and depression issues and people feel bad about themselves. And, and I apologize for that. And, um, you know, I thank all of you who kind of like weathered through it for weathering through it. And I might actually need you to weather through it a little bit longer, but we're going to have a plan to get out of this. Right. We're not going to like leave this group stranded, you know, because we're still going to, you know, uphold our promises, but we're going to 
we're going to cur curtail making any more promises and we're going to slowly work out of this to the point where, where we survive and they're well supported and then we'll each grow on our own direction and the you can imagine me like preparing for that moment yeah and i have to admit that i wasn't planning on like going as deep and spending as many minutes on the topic as i ended up doing in the room but once i started really being honest and transparent and vulnerable and honest you know just about this it felt so right it almost was like therapy for me right you know? i didn't realize it but by letting go of that i first off you know and, and also with just the relationship building and i got so many like thank you for saying that because guess what we all knew it and the right. fact that you weren't admitting it was really making us starting to to wonder what else are you not telling us yeah. what else are you not that's the how you do you know anything yeah. um what else are you not willing to confront and so that was like a, like oh my gosh so this is a better way to be a leader yeah and so that kind of started a maybe that wasn't the first time but that was a major milestone in my growth of really embracing transparency. And then it became like transparency about everything that we could legally be transparent about. Right, right. Part yeah. of that, and, and I'm a big believer in in this, this, this authenticity. So like if Bottle Rocket, if this guy named Calvin says he believes in transparency, well then how can, then, then I'm not allowed to have a office with a door because you can't see through a door. And right. so when we did our office redesign, I started thinking like, okay, so how do we take this concept of transparency into the office space design? How do we take transparency into the monthly meetings? How do we take transparency into financial um, incentives, into the financial health of the organization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's why I keep saying, going back to consistency, it's not like being, oh, we're transparent about and then have a fill in the blank. This. <laughs> right. Let's be like transparent about every single thing that we're legally allowed to be transparent about. Like I can't be transparent about someone's, you know, um, file in the HR file box. They just can't. There's regulations on that. And I follow those regulations. But if it's not like that, and then you can imagine me working with executives who might have worked in other organizations that did not have that level of transparency, I had to model that for them. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, imagine me having the first meeting with the CFO saying like, no, every month, even the shitty months, yeah. we're going to talk about, you know, profit and revenue and, you know, those sorts of things. And then to the point where you're right, I was handing the mic over. And then that person was saying, doing the financial updates. I was no longer reviewing the material before it was even said, because why? Because I had modeled it, the person picked it up. And then the person did it better than I did. So why at that point would I want to have the best, the last and best word when I need to stay on my gift? They're now on their gift. I may have had to kind of help get them to that point, but that at that point, they're going to do it better than me because they're on gift and, and I was in a, in, a, in a competency when I was doing it for them. So there's another thing I want to talk to you about because you guys embraced work from anywhere earlier than most. Mm -hmm. And culture was such and is so, still such a big part of what I think you built there. I mean, listen, you built a ton of great products, but like the the thing that I've recognized and, and a lot of what I talk about in the book is like building the company will build the product for you. Like 
it, it needs to be a good idea, obviously. <laughs> like you need to have a good product. But fundamentally, like if you build good culture and you have good people and you have good roles and responsibilities and transparency, I think good things come from that. So when you started to grow the team and adopt that, we're like so much of my experience was in that office and together. Like, how do you model? Did you find it difficult to model when people weren't around? Right? Yes, yes absolutely. And you you simply have fewer touches um, to do that modeling. And yes, we came down very strongly on one side of the work from wherever um, uh, approach, which was we added the word forever after it, right. which was pretty damn controversial. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not here to tell you that it's the, the, the right solution or the wrong solution. It's a way of doing it. Right. Um, but in any way that you pick, and I know you're not trying to make this about, you know, a, a point of view on remote work, but a lot of times it comes down to not which camp you're in the, the all, all in the office, never in the office or a combination of both. A lot of times these things get messy based on how you communicate and how you treat people in those moments. And so like, I think a lot of companies, you know, have gotten black eyes from being like dogmatic and one size fits all. And guess what? One size has never fit all. It's not fitting all now and it will never fit all. Right. One size fits all is a very easy, convenient way to pump out policies, products. I mean, I'm sure that every clothing manufacturer would much rather make a one size fits all. Imagine being a person to make shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the six and a half. You know, it's like, but, but, but the reality is, is people, you know, are all different. And so when you have an approach that starts the conversation with, you know better than me, what is it's going to take to the best work of your life. So why don't you start first by telling me what's going to work for you? Yeah. And then you need to then say, okay, well, that's great. Now what's going to work best for the team? Cause that's a, that's an entity as well. There's an entity of individual. There's, you know, the individual at, as the, as the, as the person at work, the individual, the person at, 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 in, in their family life, um, there's that group. Then there's the company. So again, Mandelbrot fractals, you know, yep. and it needs to work at all those levels. And so the, 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 the it's a consensus discussion about, okay, we'll never be able to serve every, um, entity at every moment, but we can't ever prioritize one over the other. So we can't ever say what's good for Johnny, even if it's bad for the team, we're always going to do. Right. But we also can't say, well, it doesn't matter what Johnny wants. It matters what the team wants. And we also can't do it. It doesn't matter what the team wants, only what the company wants. And, and, and I'm, I'm putting too much data, too much stuff in this one little package here, but you have to look to stakeholder theory. In stakeholder theory, if you do a stakeholder map, you draw like, you know, your company and your purpose in the middle, you draw these like, it's a hub and that and spokes go out and it's all your stakeholders, like your employees, your customers, your investors, you know, your community, et cetera, et cetera. And stakeholder theory says it is literally impossible to do what's right for every stakeholder at every time, every moment. But it's also not okay to only prioritize one stakeholder. And the right. example I always gave was, if 
if you want to prioritize stakeholder called client and the client wants the work done by 9 a.m. tomorrow and you don't prioritize Rocketeer, you'll say, okay, Rocketeer, stay all night long so that the client gets their work done by nine. And you could do that in that moment. But if you do that every single time, you're basically saying that stakeholder called clients more important than stakeholder called Rocketeer. I hope that Rocketeer quits on your ass right. because sure. they found you out. Right. And so it's going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so that idea of being able to, to, to do this in a way that works to all levels of the organizations and all stakeholders, if you would, you know, that's really key. Yeah. I think that's the thing that I, I've been very interested by this because I've been remote for a number of years now and building culture this way I, I don't find it to be harder, but I do find it requires more attention. It's just different. It's it's not right. It's like most things in the world. They're not right or wrong. They're just different. Yeah. It's like and most innovations or like changes in our society, they're considered, oh, well, the way we used to do it was right. The way we're doing it now is wrong. Like, no, it's different. It might be bad for commercial real estate right. in current form. Right. If you then think like, well, what if I was was willing to disrupt myself? You know, there's all sorts of commercial real estate opportunities out there. They're just different. Yeah. You know, they're different. And so the the what I you know, and I um, do a little bit of talking about this thing of this remote work. And I was talking to this group and wonderful CEO, and they told me they spent I think it was ten million dollars a year on real estate. And um, a lot of it was going unused. And believe it or not, even in the everyone works in the office time era, um, a person's desk was never used more than about 55% of the time, which is why some companies went to like hoteling and free addressing yeah. and things like that. Um, so in this CEO was saying like, I'm already spending that $10 million. I'm wondering if I'm, if that's really what this company needs the most. What if I took a large portion of $10 million and put it into um, scholarships and training mm -hmm. and all sorts of other things. And I was like, that's, that's the way to think. The way to think is you're investing in the business, but where are you placing those bets? You know, you could be t removing them from things that maybe are not as important anymore to our, to our world or your business and putting them in places which are now more important. And so ways of leaning into personal freedoms in place and time, there's lots of ways to do that. And so thinking creatively and not thinking like, how do I get back to the old way as fast as possible, but admitting the world has changed and saying like, how can I really capitalize on this? Yeah. When we did the, the um, what we call the self-managed vacation plan, we did it for a couple of reasons. One, we wanted to send a very strong message to current you know, Rocketeers, as well as future recruits, that we trusted people and that we, we, we truly wanted people to have autonomy. Um, but we also wanted to have a competitive edge because at the time, only 2% of hiring companies did that. Yeah. And so we could, we could really come up with, with a benefit that no one could compete with. It was not purely altruistic. And the same thing can be done now where you have this like, this almost like weird, like religious battle over 
in the office or at home. And I'm like, just put place away for a second. Just don't worry about that. And now focus on supporting the person as an individual, the group as a team, the company, et cetera, et cetera, and then make a new thing. And I don't have the answer what that is because it's different for every company, but make a new thing, which might include some in-person time. It might include some remote time and who knows what it is. It kind of depends on that, that group, but that, but everyone involved has to be willing to find not just common ground, but like higher ground. Yeah. Because again, like, like Joe in my example before, Joe needs to say, well, you know what, just cause I work best this way doesn't mean that that's right for my team. I need to have empathy yeah. for my team. I want my team to have empathy for me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the more you can get teams to, to work as a, um, like a self governed group, the faster your business will scale and the happier the people will be. Because like I mentioned before, no, you know, one size doesn't fit all. It's hard for a CEO to come up with a size for every single person. It's a lot easier for CEO or manager to come up with a variety of sizes that are like inside a specified parameters spectrum and then let people kind of kind of pick within that. If you remember a long time ago before COVID and everything else, we have forgot what we called it, but we, it wasn't like a work from home day. It was called a something day. And I can't remember for the life of me. And we said to teams are like, take it if you want to don't, if you don't want to, there's a couple simple rules, you know, don't do them on Tuesdays and don't, I thought it was like, don't do them on like Tuesdays and some other day because there were logistical reasons why that was, was not, was not a good idea. Um, and then you did, de- and then you decide internally, how are you going to take those? Yeah. Are you going to meet together? Are you all going to like sh- shut yourselves apart? You all have to be accessible in some way. There were some simple rules that were really more, not rules to hurt, but rules to help. Yep. Because you the project manager at that time, at least in our business was kind of in charge of those, those whatever self-directed days or whatever they're called. And we wanted that project manager to have like a backstop of like, no, 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 we all have to stay on Slack or we all have to do something. But then it was like, figure it out. And it sent a great message to the team, but it also created this environment where we would defer to the team's um, opinion about what's best for them. Maybe not perfectly, maybe not every time, but it sent this really strong message throughout the whole organization. And and while we didn't have a size for every individual, we had a size for every team. So we had 20 teams, we had 20 sizes. Yep. It, it wasn't one size for, the, for, the, for all departments, all people, all teams. And so the more you can start to create these like functional self-governing units, the faster you can scale your organization. Well, you just said something that I, I want to just highlight and then we'll move to the questions really quick because I want to respect your time. But you said figure it out. And like, that's one of the things that I love the most about working with you. And one of the things that I took away for the most is like, for the most part, if if you're doing good work and you care about what you're doing and you hire people that are like-minded in that restraint. Now, listen, you don't want like-minded people. You want diversity, but you want people who want to be good at the thing they're trying to do. Most people will figure it out, right? And as long as you give them the latitude to figure it out and you figure it out with them, so they're not on an island yeah. on their own, but you're there as support and you're again, empathetic and available and transparent and why, especially when it comes to like leading companies, like sometimes the word is no, 
And it's like, listen, here's no, but here's why, right? Mm -hmm. And here's the why behind the no. And if we can find another ground, I think we can do something with that. But yeah, I'm really fascinated to see how this work from wherever thing continues, because I I do think that some people have dug their heels in on both sides a little too hard, I think. Like, I think there's probably a lot of really healthy middle ground to be experienced. But all that said, the only one podcasty pithy thing I do is I do have a small questionnaire that I ask everybody I want to ask you at the end. Um, you hit on a couple of these, so you can feel free to answer in the same vein, but I also know you well enough to know that it would not surprise me if you have other stuff. So the first question is a quote or concept that you love. Well, you know, there's lots of those. <laughs> we talked about a couple of them. Uh, you know, probably the one, if I only could pick one, oh, that's hard, is, um, you know, culture eat strategy for breakfast. I'm just like a and I, that's a requote from someone else. So I think you used the term in a, in a slightly different way than, than I intend for it to mean. And But what, what I mean it to be is like that is like the ultimately most important thing um, to always keep the most important thing. And so that's actually I just all of a sudden started saying another quote. And the other quote is, you know, the most important thing is to keep the most important thing the most important thing that's important for each individual. That's that's also important for every leader. And that's hard as hell to do, but that's that course correcting, you know, got to define what that is. And then you're constantly making, you know, tack, tacking your way there, which is you actually turning the sail, but then also getting bounced back. And then you turn the rudder to make those, you know, those, um, those, um, those, those small course corrections. But I think that that is a great way to, um, to kind of return to center. So if a business is like, let's say a, a business that I, any business I would be involved in would obviously believe culture eats strategy for breakfast. Let's just assume the business does in fact believe that. Um, and a question comes up, you know, it's going to be like, and, and let's say it's good for X and Y, but not good for culture. It's a hard no, yeah. you know, or it's a, okay, well, we might have to do something because our back's against the wall, but we're going to like as fast as possible and we're going to admit it to people. I remember there was a year, a few years back, um, I don't know, five, six years back, we had a really crappy year, just financially, just a really scary year. And, um, and I remember saying, you know, we're, you know, these, there's a list of things that, we'll, that we're willing to do and there's a list of things we're willing not to do. One of the things we're willing that we're not willing to do is break our values. But there's a list of things that we're going to need to be willing to do. We might take on some projects that we might feel are, quote unquote, beneath us, you know, smaller, not strategic, not exciting. Um, There might be some some um, uh, things, you know, services that we provide that we don't think are really that core or important, but there are ways to maybe make some money, you know, so we can get back to what what we really want to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, culture, like we will not hurt the culture or certainly not knowingly or consistently hurt the culture. I, I think that that is a really important one because it helps a leader very quickly make decisions about should we do this or not? And the first question should be, is it going to hurt the hurt or help the culture? And if it's culture neutral or culture positive, then then, yeah, keep talking. But if it's culture negative, you probably should stop talking about it. Or, or this should be like a triage type situation right. where you're going in with a publicly known plan about, you know, getting right back out of that. 
Um, so culture stat strategy for breakfast is probably my number one. I love it. All right. What's a quarter concept that you dislike? I really dislike, and I also don't trust, I shouldn't say I dislike the person. I dislike the statement. Um, Hey, it's, it's not personal. It's just business. And I don't trust individuals who say that. Um, I think business is one of the most personal things when you're doing it the way I do it. Yeah. You're really doing something personal. And, and for us to spend so much of our time alive doing business, a career of some sort, um, it kind of has to be personal. You know, yeah. you're not doing it right. I don't think because you're not doing it authentically. You're not doing something you want to do and you're not doing it with people you want to do it with. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, business is is one of the most personal expressions that someone can have about who they are and the impact that they're going to have on the world. So to say this is not personal, this is business is it's it's a it's a hard it's a hard no. It's a, I can't do business with this person. And I literally have been in situations where like, I really saw some terrific opportunities and that was mentioned. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to politely find a way to get out of this meeting because I, I know I'll never be able to trust this person. Yeah. It's so, I, I think that's one of my favorites I've heard so far because it feels like such an innocuous, not a big deal quote until you think about it. And then you're like, no, that sucks actually. Like that's a really shitty thing to say and feel because you're right. I mean, like I inherently, like I define so much of how I define myself as a human is the work that I've done. And so much of the work that I've done is the work that I've done. I, I mean, I, we spend all this time doing it. So yeah, it's, it's, I, I never would have had that on my list, but I think it might crawl into mine now because it's always kind of irked me a little bit where I'm like, yeah, but like, but why? Like, couldn't it be personal? Isn't it more fun if it is at least a little personal? I want to like you. You want to like me. But like the more you like, as you were talking about it, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's obnoxious. Actually, I hate it. <laughs> I think I hate that. <laughs> All work is noble. All work is noble. It's it's, you know, it's whether you're curing a disease or you're driving a bus or you're yeah. watching someone else's kids, you know, or like babysitter or, you know, you're sending the next, you know, James Webb's telescope to space. All work is noble. And so treat it that way. And, and to, to put some sort of like blanket excuse of this is not personal, this is business, is such a cowardly cop yeah, out. So cowardly. Yeah. No, you know, I agree. Own it. Own it. If you're going to do something now to, to hurt me, own it. Don't say yeah. it's okay that you did this because it's just business. Yeah. Like, no, you're a person. I'm a person. The, bus the business we're doing is, is a part of our relationship. So own it. All right. Uh, a job other than your own you would love to have? <laughs> the guy working the James Webb telescope. <laughs> <laughs> the person working the... Yeah, I've, I've, I have uh, found... I've fallen in love with the hobby of astrophotography. And um, I'm a hobbyist. And it'd be fun to find a way for it to be like a full-time gig. I just really enjoy it. And it's a interesting combination of, of tech technology because astrophotography is a radically technical thing, like radically technical, much more than I think a lot of people realize. Plus there's creativity, there's independent expression, interpretation involved in it. So there's like an art component. Yeah. Um, there's a constant growth, constant learning opportunity, probably because of how technical it is. 
there's a extreme requirement for precision in the order of nano, even more so than micro, like you know, nanometers. Um, and it's something that the, 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 the subject matter is something we all understand and we and and we all and none of us understand at the same time it's like yeah we all know that there's stuff up there and none of us really know what it is so for for every human that looks at a james webb type thing we're all like touched in some interesting way yeah um so it's a it's whether you see it as a maker thing a science thing or an art thing it's kind of a combination of all of those things um but it's something that when someone looks at it uh, the the impact it has on them is 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 both meaningful and unique to that person um so i have found a lot of um of interesting things inside of that seemingly you know innocuous hobby that's great what's a job other than your own you would never want never want yeah um you know i have a really hard time enforcing rules that i think are stupid and um i shouldn't use the word stupid because that's judgmental and it implies that the people who wrote them are stupid and the people that are upholding them are stupid so i should guess i, I should i should rephrase that to say like i'm not a good i'm not i don't like enforcing rules that hurt versus help and i've always been a big proponent of of it's okay to break rules when these rules are hurting more than they're helping so i would not want to be the person with the job description of upholding these dogmatic rules whatever they are you know uh handing out speeding tickets or i don't know or whatever those things are um uh because i can't be blind to the circumstances right it's this whole one size fits all thing just doesn't jive with me and and so i would not want to be in a situation where my success or failure at a job would be enforcing dogmatic rules and there's a lot of jobs like that that, those people that are doing that and 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 more power to you for those people that are interpreting those rules in real time and applying empathy judgment and humanity in the interpretation and enforcement of those rules. That's an easy way to lose your job, but it's also probably the right thing to do. Probably the right thing to do. Uh, what turns you on spiritually, creatively, or emotionally? <laughs> well, whenever I get in front of a whiteboard, I get pretty excited. <laughs> and I love whiteboards because it's an endless possibility. Anything can be up there. And I like them that they're dry erase because you can change it any any second. So I guess it's the it's the blank thing. It's the clean desk. It's the blank piece of paper. It's the shiny whiteboard. Yeah. It's those situations that I get so excited because anything at that moment is possible. You're not complicit with anything yet. It's what's really hard though is then be building something at at some point have something to lose and still have the the whatever to erase and start drawing again. Right. And, and I'm not saying a complete erase, er, erasing, but I hope that people who work with me 
will report that I was always open to the idea of rewriting um, portions. We can rewrite the whole book over time, right? right? But we probably should only rewrite one chapter at a time. But I'm okay rewriting the whole thing. One of the reasons why we would we would swap in and out of uh, of tools, software tools, at Bottle Rocket was because I was like, hey, you know, if we got the wrong tool, there's a better one out there. We should always be open to having the right thing. Yeah. You know, uh, professionals deserve the best tools. Artists deserve the best, you know, materials. And so I was never like, oh, no, no, we already have that or we already do it this way. I was always like, tell me more. You know, I can't guarantee that we can do it because we might be doing too many other things right now. We might be like rewriting another chapter of the business. You know, we can't like completely dump the whole book. But I remember um, a guy who's, uh, you know, nickname was J-Law. He was the one who came up with the idea of self-managed vacation, not me. I'm happy to give him the credit for it. And and I forgot exactly, but I think he like challenged it in a very public way. Like, why do we do this? And I had that like pucker moment if I could have been like, shut the fuck up. Right. Or I could have been like, tell me more. And I chose to tell me more. And it, I was like, you know what? You're right. We're going to do that until we have another way to do it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the blank thing. I like, well, so there's two things I want to remark on quickly. There's something very beautiful about you being turned on by infinite possibility and wanting to be an astrophotographer, by the way. Um, <laughs> the other thing I'll say, just because it's a little self-serving, but like that was the whole, the whole conceit of this platform that I built for my book is exactly that, right? Is this idea of here's stuff that you should interact with. Go tell me why I'm wrong. I don't know if I'm right. And I, I also want all this stuff to be right, which is only going to happen through collaboration and conversation, which is why the podcast exists, which is why I'm publishing the book for free and letting people comment and like challenge me on stuff because it's not right. I also like that, like it's a literal interpretation of one chapter at a time. Like as, as quickly as digital things move, by the time you print the book, it's out of date. So, you know, I want to bring the conversation to people. So that's, I, I just, I couldn't not take the, a quick win of, of why that like lined up with this. Cause it's fun. Well, the one thing to, you know, your further reading on this topic, so to speak, would be looking into, um, uh, I think the book's called the empowerment dynamic. The concept is called the victim triangle and the, and this is like next level stuff. I learned, I learned most of my heady stuff um from a from a, a group called stegen stegen.com and um the victim triangle is you know this triangle is and there's a player a role in each corner one is the uh persecutor who is persecuting the victim in the other corner and then being saved by the rescuer in the other corner so it's persecutor victim rescuer and, and like three or four thousand times a day we are in one of those corners, we're either persecuting someone, um, you know, because we cut them off in traffic, you know, we're the victim because we got cut off in traffic and I'm the rescuer because like, oh, I saw that. That was bad. And I'm going to let you in, you know, so it's, it's just it, 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 it happens in big and small ways. And the and the teaching is to move from the victim triangle triangle to the creators. I think it's called the creator dynamic. And and that's when the um the persecutor becomes challenger 
And I would argue you are challenging people, you know, by saying, you should look at this, take a look at this. I'm not saying it's right. You know, um, the other corner is coach. So you don't rescue, but you're coaching, yeah. you know, you don't get on the field and make the touchdown for them, but you're going to talk to them and work with them on the field, off the field, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the victim, um, goes from a mindset of despair because they're the victim. They become the creator. They go to the mindset of what's possible, right? You know, what do you want to create? And so I think that that is a really interesting thing. And, and there was this, um, this, like, I call it a ritual, I guess that we did in pre COVID days. Um, and unfortunately it was a victim and it should not have been. And that that's my fault. I, I allowed, um, forces to, to, um, to derail us, us bottle rocket from this, um, ritual, but it was called project share and what it was. And I won't spend a lot of time on this cause we could spend a whole hour on this one topic. Cause it was ended up being such a powerful thing. There's so much nuance to it. What it really was, I mean, well, what it was on, on its surface was every week, you know, every project team would come in and present their some part of the progress they've made on on said project over a period of 15 or so minutes. And so because we were in the app business, you know, it was usually like, hey, here's like the, the checkout flow for the Chick-fil-A mobile ordering, you know, or here's the reservation flow for, you know, Southwest Airlines, you know, something like that. Um, and and then um, in this in the in the spirit of modeling, I was at the front. I wasn't the only person up there. You know, there was other people and anyone in the room was allowed to raise their hand and, and comment. Anyone. Um, the whole team was supposed to be there. So everyone heard it, not just like the product person or the project person or the designer, everyone together. And what I was trying to do was be challenger. You know, I was trying to basically First, send the strong, consistent message that every single thing mattered. And I would be like, you know what? I think this might be off by half a pixel, believe it or not. For, for the listeners, there was such a thing as being off by half a pixel. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it might be off. If it's not, it's okay. It just looks a little strange. I wasn't telling you what to do. I was pointing things out. And sometimes, even if something was perfect, I'd find something to point out because I wanted to send the message of, you know, it's a relentless, restless, constant journey, never ever expecting to hit, get to perfection, but crazy enough to pursue it, you know? And, and when, when people would see, you know, the founder and CEO in front of the room, just caring about every last little tiny thing, it sent the message of, well, I, I, gosh, if he cares about that half pixel, I, I better care about that half pixel. What other half pixels are around, so to speak, you know, using that proverbial half pixel. And it was, it was also teaching people how to deal with challenge. It was also teaching me how to challenge people in a, in a um, polite, loving, productive way. Yeah. And what it did, it was, it created this environment where Project shares were happening all the time, every minute of the day throughout the office. And it was this idea of, of challenging another. One of the reasons we've worked on whiteboards is because it's an easy way to access someone else's work, workflow. 
You can walk up, you could, you could stand inside of their work and you can have a conversation about their work. Um, so, you know, those sorts of things, they don't, they, yeah, someone may have said like, oh, it's just like Calvin being micromanaging, tr making sure that every project did something in the last seven days. That wasn't it whatsoever. Right. You know, it was all about having a shared experience of working publicly, discussing possibilities, challenging everything, you know, going through a cycle, maybe even coming back to the same conclusion, but going through that cycle because the work's important, the work is noble, the, the impact we all have is important. We all have a say to the thing. So little rituals like that have such a massive impact, you know, and challenge is one of those things that is hard to do, but if you don't do it, what are you doing? How are you growing? How are you learning? If you're not challenging others and being challenged yourself, this is not about victimizing others and persecuting and rescuing. This is about challenging, creating and coaching. Yeah. I, I love those, by the way. It's a thing that I, I still do. My All my teams since Bottle Rocket have always done, hey, what you working on? And like do like pr little presentations, like at least bi-weekly, just so people know what's up. Um, all right. Let's run the last ones because I know we're, we're at time. Uh, what's something that turns you off spiritually, creatively, or emotionally? Uh, people who ask how too quickly, you know, and, and actually I talk about this in this passion and purpose speech that I, that I used to give a lot. And I used to say like, ignore how it's the old JFK speech. You can imagine if like someone in the middle of that, we're going to the moon somehow, some way, if someone raised their hand and be like, ah, excuse me, excuse me, how are we going to do that? Right. Hmm? How are we going to do that? Right. It's like, oh, not now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not yet. <laughs> so it's you know the thing has to come to life the thing deserves to flap its wings and see if it can in fact figure out the how don't don't kill you know the baby bird out right outside of the egg with with a how you know um, bludgeon across its head got it what's a product that you love well, I got a few. Um, I really love my Uni Pizza Oven, O-O-N-I. It's awesome. Um, design well, works well, looks so great. beautiful. Yeah. That, just everything about it, you can tell there was so much care and love. Yeah. And you, you know if you walked into that office, wherever, whatever country, you know, they, it's made in, you would just get along with those people. Yeah. yeah because yeah. they would be so geeking out and nerding out about what they do. And I'm just passionate about passion. So yeah. that turns me on that someone cares so much to think about everything and the old polish, the undersides of the table. I care so much about it. You know, I even care about the parts you'll never see. Yeah. You know, it's really, really interesting. Um, and of course, you know, I, my Rasa telescope, which is, uh, which is a, a, a favorite of mine. I just love that thing. It's fast, wide, you know, wide field. Um, terrific, you know, um, aberration free, coma free, you know, accurate color. It's just a, it's just a well-made machine. Um, and then, um, I'd say uh, another thing would be, um, you know, my iPhone. I mean, I, it goes without saying I'm an Apple fanboy, but I'm a fanboy for a reason. <laughs> yeah, right. just, and people have gotten to the point where they just want to hate you know, this and that. And you'll be like, come on, guys, there is a freaking miracle in your pocket, you know, helping you do things you were never able to do before. Yeah. It's, it's, these sorts of things are transformational. 
Um, and so those are a couple of things. I think it has to do with the fact that, that every part of it's so well thought out. Yeah. I was gonna say thoughtful products is that that's the, uh, telescopes are fascinating for me. I love horology. I love watches and telescopes mm -hmm. are a lot like watches to me because mm -hmm. there's all like the intricacy and delicate, like how delicate mm -hmm. each little thing needs to be to do this other very little thing mm -hmm. that then incorporates into the much larger picture yeah. for telescopes, a literal picture. Right. Like, so they're really cool products. Like I, I always get super nerdy about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, is there a product that you just wish was better? Anything Microsoft makes. <laughs> I think that's the right answer. <laughs> and there's a takeaway there. That's not just a diss. There's a takeaway there. And that's there's, there's two mindsets, I believe. There's two mindsets in building tech stacks, like business tech stacks. One is to buy a fairly mediocre but does everything type of thing, like a, the Microsoft suite that like, you know, which is usually very compatible with the needs and the limitations of resources of IT departments. Oh, well, it does everything. It just happens to do kind of crappy. The other way to do it, it's much harder, but it's better. And the results are so much better is you take a best of breed approach. It's like a constellation approach. You're connecting the best and brightest of the stars in the sky. And so that's when you connect Salesforce to Slack, to Lattice, to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you, and you, you pick the best of the ones that have integration abilities. And then you do the work to integrate it yourself. And I've always been more on the other side. It's like, even the telescope world, I'm picking the best autofocus or the best guider, the best computer, the best telescope, the best secondary, the best, you know, um, uh, uh, um, uh, do heater. It's all these different things. Then I, then I put them together. And so that is the thing I don't like about Microsoft is they don't actually ever think that much about having any one experience be the best in the world. So they, they fall victim to, by the way, like I, this, it's not a hate thing for them. Like they're fine. But like, I, I do think there's an interesting thing that I pull on here a lot from a product standpoint, right? Which is the difference between revolutionary and evolutionary product design. Like Microsoft is an evolutionary product that has grown up. It, it, they keep adding more stuff to it to keep getting closer to the newest, greatest thing. But revolutionary products are leap, like leapfrog them years in advance in some instances yeah. because it, they're, they're just doing more stuff. They don't have legacy weight. They don't have legacy architecture and infrastructure to consider. Mm -hmm. And so they're free of binding. They can just do what they want. Like, well, no, it should just do this thing. Let's just make it do this thing. So that's like, you know, being a, like building a revolutionary tech stack is getting everybody who's on the edge of everything and stringing it all together versus the incumbent, which has evolutionary grown to be a thing that does mostly everything pretty well in mm -hmm. one place but those companies i find it fascinating this is another whole hour we could do why they struggle to innovate so much but anyway i there i think that's totally fair and I, I agree with that one so the last question which is my favorite question which is if you could solve any one problem through technology what would it be i think it'd be education preach and i i, I have to admit that i have not found myself brave enough to personally take that on um but I do believe it is it is probably the single and highest um, highest and best use, if you would, of of some sort of disruptive technology play would be education, especially education to the underserved. Yep. And I don't think it's going to be any one thing. Um, I, as a astrophotographer, I don't I don't really like all the satellites that Elon's putting into the sky with Starlink because they get in my pictures. But the reality is I have software that can take it out. Um, but that is a form of using technology to help 
promote education because if we can get, we're not there yet, but if we can get um, access to information to everyone, no matter where they are, yeah, um, and and no matter what the infrastructure is in the physical space that or country or city or rural area that they're in, that's a part of it. Just getting access, knowing is half the battle is what G.I. Joe said. And G.I. Joe was pretty much right on there, you know? Pretty much spot so, on. So I have a lot of respect for the fact, you know, that a, you know, that there is a initiative that is going to hopefully get everyone on an equal footing of access to information or more equal footing. And I think that that plus 12 other things, you know, I, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting educators that are educating in very different ways. Because remember, there's different ways to learn. Yep. There's auditory learners, kinesthetic learners, experiential learners. You know, there's you know, there's a visual, etc. Um, and I'm doing this with my own kids, maybe not as well as I should. Is I'm, I'm like, man, there's some cool stuff on YouTube. You know, yeah. I've never heard someone explain the Fermi paradox as well as this guy. It was educational. It was, there were graphs. So my like vision, you know, learning need was satisfied and it was kind of funny. It was entertaining. This person should be the one teaching Fermi paradox to every single kid in the world. Yeah. <laughs> no, we just like pipe that through. And then there's the, then the person who's going to be teaching long vision better than anyone in the world. So I think we've got to move away from a traditional learning um, the way that we have been teaching and find a new way. And I don't have the answer to that, but I think it's a combination of, you know, in classroom experiences. And I think it's a combination of scaled broadcast, you know, like if we have the best way, if we have found the, the video or the thing or the book that teaches auditory learners, the best way to learn long division, why are we then recreating that? Yeah. And I also think there's going to be a there's there's a there's a practical need with the the um, the scarcity of people willing to to be educators and to to do it in a way that is impactful enough to actually educate versus just you know babysit a classroom, and and it's going to be really hard for us to scale that because we're not spending the kind of money we're not providing the kind of teacher assistance support edu you know continue education that we should be so we need to find another way and technology might be able to come over the top of that i'm not saying crush it or replace it but come over the top of it and connect it and augment it and support it and i do think that there's a way for individual teachers to have a meaningful impact and a and a meaningful experience in their their career and leverage technology in interesting ways to bring the best content and the best ways of learning and then bring it down to the individual child because in any one classroom there's got to be at least three different types of learning styles but that teacher really isn't supported to be able to, to deliver the same message three different ways but there's ways to do that there are ways to do that. So I think education would be the greatest, the greatest use. And it's just kind of sad that we're, we're not there. It is, it is our biggest goal at my company right now is to be financially successful enough that we can give it away for free to anyone who's an educator, because I think that they make it so hard. I mean, unfortunately, just the way the system is set up in this country, it is not an economically feasible market to enter. And that sucks. Mm. It sucks. 
And so the way that I hope that it works, right, is you get a bunch of people like you and I who are a part of other companies that are doing things that, are, that would help. And if they get successful, you give it to educators for free and go forget it. There's no red tape. Just use it. Like we're, we're a visual platform. If you want to do visual learning, we can help with that. It's super easy. Have it. If you have a dot, I'll go back to Facebook days. You got a dot edu kid, have it. It's yours forever. Yeah. Well, listen, Calvin, I absolutely adore you. I'm so grateful for your time. Um, I, if, if there's anything that you want to end on, the, the floor is yours. I've, I've always been so appreciative of what you taught me and, and your continued guidance. And I hope that people found this as, as interesting as I did, because I've loved it. I appreciate it, man. I really do. I mean, I think probably the one thing I would would leave everyone with is is um, I have been uh, served well by being honest with myself as to you know what I care about, being honest with with others about what I care about. That's that polarization, um, but that takes reflection, and that reflection needs to result in some sort of you know articulation. And so the earlier in your life that you spend time, you know, developing your personal values and your personal purpose, um, I think the happier you're going to be, the more life you're going to live, the, the more authentic and deeper and meaningful your relationships will have, because you have to know yourself, you know, before you can be known. And unfortunately, it is not easy. We do not come with some little, you know, handbook, you know, tied around our big toe right. when, when we're born. And part of the hard, one of the hardest things is looking inside. And we're so used to looking to others to tell us who we are and what we should be doing and what's important to us when the reality is, is at some point, you know, it's gotta be you and you, you know, doing this. So I tell people, you know, do things you love. I don't tell people to love what you do. I tell people to do what you love. Um, and, and do them because you love them and do them because you chose to do them, not because it's going to, you know, impress your parents or make you popular. I mean, um, you just got to do you. And that is hard as hell in this world. It's especially hard in the formative years of high school and things like that. Yeah. But that is a boot camp we all, we all share. And we're all going through, you know, something in our lives. But the more we can have a pre-articulation of our purpose and our values, the more prepared we are for those darker, darker days. Because values are just guideposts. They're signs along the road. They don't do the work for you, but they remind you of who you've decided you are and who you, you know, and so it's not who you want to be, it's who you are. Yeah. Um, so I think the earlier you do that in your life, I was fortunate enough you know, through working with Stegen to figure that out, probably my mid twenties. Um, I'm 50 something now. Um, but there's never, it's never too late to start that process. Um, and so that's the thing I would, would challenge everybody is to, um, is to be figuring out the articulation of your purpose and your values. And there's lots of ways to do that. Calvin, thank you for your time. And I hope everybody enjoyed this as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Thank you, man. This was fun.